Hey, it's Luke. We are entering the second full week of June, and you may have heard, it'd be hard to have missed it, there's already been a thick cloud of wildfire smoke blanketing Manhattan. Here in Spokane, we had our first air quality alert in May. May, that's really early for us. I've lived and worked around downtown Spokane for almost 20 years. I can't remember the Spokane River being this low this early on in the year. It's felt June levels of low since May. And that might be because we just experienced the hottest month of May on record. Our snowpack is effectively gone from our watershed. And as I sit here in my attic recording this intro, we'll see, here's where, <laughs> here's where I was originally going to say, I'm trying to do it as quickly as possible so I can turn on my air conditioning before the room becomes unbearably hot at 10 in the morning. But I wrote that when it was unbearably hot, and then when I came to record it, we had what felt like an extremely unseasonable thunderstorm with rain so heavy, it weighed down my neighbor's trees until the transformers in their backyard began arcing. So I didn't actually record then because I didn't want a power surge to go through all of this equipment. So now I'm finally recording it on a day where it's kind of normal for June, except if that's the whiplash of weather variation that you can get in maybe a, a little over a week in Spokane, can we even say there is a normal weather for this time of year anymore? The weather's getting more extreme. And as much as you just heard me complaining about it, I'm obviously one of the lucky ones. I can easily find respite from heat. I have a roof over my head so I can get out of the drenching rain. If you're listening to this, you probably can too, but plenty of our neighbors can't. At least 19 people died of heat exposure in Spokane County during the 2021 heat wave. And it's kind of a miracle we didn't see a similar loss of life last year. Camp Hope is gone now, as we reported on Friday. And most people seem to think that's a good thing. But let's not forget that one of the huge controversies at Camp Hope during the summer was the cooling tent they provided for their 600 residents. That tent is gone now. So we better hope that the city's official plan, the official cooling plan for the summer, is more comprehensive than last. Beyond matters of life and death, there are also significant disparities in quality of life that revolve around inequality and our shared built environment. The air quality was in the green for most of Spokane as I was writing this, but there was one spot of yellow, one spot of moderately bad air quality in the Chief Gary neighborhood of Northeast Spokane. As you'll hear us discuss with our guest Brian Henning of the Gonzaga Center for Climate, Society, and the Environment, Chief Gary is one of the neighborhoods in Spokane with a very sparse urban canopy which is the term environmentalists and arborists and city planners use to discuss the amount of a city that is covered by trees. Trees obviously keep things cooler, but they also filter out air pollution. So is it any wonder that the South Hill, which is blanketed with trees, can have relatively good air quality when neighborhoods that aren't as covered with trees have poor air quality? Dr. Henning's gonna talk about a number of things one of the big ones is the importance of a healthy urban canopy, meaning a dense urban canopy, to reduce what scientists call heat islands. Heat islands are hot spots in cities where rather than sunlight being absorbed by trees and used to power photosynthesis and make the trees bigger, which creates oxygen and keeps ground temperatures cool and, and keeps the air clean, there are fewer or perhaps zero trees. And so the heat reaches the ground, it's absorbed by the concrete and the asphalt, and that heat radiates, creating temperatures that are 14 degrees hotter in say Hilliard on average, than again, the tree-lined streets over the South Hill. Well, now that I think about it, many if not most single homes also have asphalt shingles on their roofs. 
So the sun gets absorbed into those two heating our homes. And many of us are able to mitigate that heating, that internal heating with air conditioning, central AC or wall units or whatever. But many of the people that died two years ago actually died in their homes from the heat that accumulated inside of them. Some people died on the streets, but many didn't. So even if we came up with a perfectly equitable street tree plan today, that'll take 20 years to grow out or more. And we will still have people in danger of death in their own homes for the foreseeable future. Dr. Henning will talk about that as well and a potential solution for that that he's working on. And look, trees in Spokane will not fix climate change. Climate change is a global crisis that will require a global solution. But trees can help mitigate the local effects of that crisis, the way that crisis impacts us specifically. And we need to do it now because I don't know if you've paid much attention to trees, but they don't grow to maturity overnight. You don't have to be an arborist to witness that. You just look outside. So then the obvious questions are, what can we do today to help our neighbors survive and make our neighborhoods more resilient while we wait 20 or 30 years for that tree cover to grow? And then what other steps can we take at a local level to mitigate the harm to ourselves and our neighbors, especially the most vulnerable of us, to the effects of climate change? These are not rhetorical questions. Carl and I get into all of that and more with Brian Henning, director of the Gonzaga Center for Climate, Society, and the Environment. Coming up. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. Today we're talking to Brian G. Henning, the director of the Gonzaga Center for Climate, Society, and the Environment, and a professor of philosophy and environmental studies at Gonzaga University. Thanks for joining us, Brian. It's my pleasure. So it feels like it's been unseasonably hot for a couple weeks already now, and it seems like it's only getting hotter with temperatures getting into the 90s this week and wildfire smoke coming into the region from Canada. How does this early heat compare to our typical weather in the inland Northwest? Yeah, you know, we've had such a long, cold winter. Initially, it it was welcome, right? But we've got a bunch of whiplash. It feels like we skipped over spring a little bit. And in in some ways, we have. We are looking at temperatures already at 20 to 30 degrees warmer than usual for this time of year. And that's pretty significant. We've already broken several temperature records. But we also find that we're having really high variability where we're swinging from really warm to to quite cold again, back and forth. And that by itself is a little bit odd. But I think it's important when we're talking about, as we will today, about sort of the long-term impacts of heat and smoke, that it's in the context of looking for not so much what happens in a single season. Was this winter real cold or is this summer real hot? But looking, trying to put it in the context of, of the overall trends. And what we see is the frequency of these types of, of extended periods of heat are increasing over time. And so uh, even though we don't want to overfocus on a particular stretch of heat, we want to see, is there an increasing trend uh, trend line? And, and we find that there is, and that's really concerning. 
Do does this early season heat have any kind of predictive quality for the rest of the summer? Should we expect a really hot summer because it's been so hot this spring? It's not clear, but if we put this summer in the last few summers that we've had in the context of the last few decades, we see that the frequency of these events are increasing and that's really concerning. If listeners are interested in looking more at those long-term forecasts for our region, there's a great website that community members created called Spokane Climate Project, and you can find it just at spokaneclimateproject.org. And there, there's a section on temperature, and they used these climate models, these complicated systems to be able to evaluate what might happen at lower and higher emission scenarios for our region, and specifically regarding temperature. And we see that we've already had about one degree warming at Celsius, uh, Fahrenheit that so far in our area. And depending on what we do, we'll have more increasing temperatures of this sort moving into the rest of this century. And so that website's a really great community asset developed by community members. And so I really encourage everybody to go and take a look at that. And there's also a great documentary made by a local filmmaker, Megan Kennedy at Rogue Heart Media. And that's a really nice resource. It's about 20 minutes long, really nice watch there at Spokane Climate Project. So much of local climate, obviously, this is a global climate system, and so much of this stuff ties into patterns we don't even really necessarily understand, or we're still taking time to understand the way these things work. It does seem like we're getting, like, you know, so El Nino is like warmer and drier than, you know, seasonal because of global weather patterns. It seems like that's happening more often, and it was, I think it's going to happen again this year. Is that is that something you track, how these sort of global trends are increasing over time or decreasing over time, and what impact that has on our local climate? It seems like what we're finding is we have some of these regular cycles, and you're mentioning some of them with El Nino and La Nina, which are natural cycles that the Earth has gone through that we have seen for a long period of time. So they're natural, and that natural variability. What we find right now is that we are finding intersecting trends. And so we'll have a year of El Nino or La Nina that intersects with increasing concentrations of greenhouse gases, which are making it so that there's more energy in the system. And so when these correspond, then we're getting really extreme weather events. So for example, this summer, when we had these atmospheric rivers in uh, California, it is that state's no stranger to atmospheric rivers, but the frequency of them, the magnitude of them is changing. So what we're doing is changing the frequency, we're changing the magnitudes. And so we these events might've happened, but they might not have been as large we might have had a heat wave, but it wouldn't have been as long or as high of a peak. And so that's what seems to be changing. Spokane's always had really hot summers. We're no strangers to that, but this idea of a really extended period of time where we have really high temperatures for a long number of days, and especially deadly is when the nighttime temperatures are not cooling off, then the things we've done as a community don't work as well. And I don't know about you, but I tend to not like to use my air conditioning. And so I, I just open up my windows at night and put a fan in there and try and suck in all that cold night air. Then in the morning, I'll shut my windows and put the blinds up. And that that works pretty well. And, and you know, a decade ago, I might have been able to do almost the whole summer like mm -hmm. that. But in these really extreme heat events, what we're finding is that just doesn't work. It's not cooling off at night. And we get this system that's stuck over the top of the city. Those are the things that are concerning where or changing the frequency and the magnitude of those sorts of events. And so, although weather events like El Nino and La Nina are regular natural phenomenon, they're intersecting with what we've done to change the climate. 
and that's changing the frequency of these other climate disruptions that mm. we're experiencing. A big climate disruption that your research and the research of your institution has focused on was that heat dome from 2021, temperatures in the 100 teens. So you, you released this Beat the Heat project about the impacts of that deadly heat wave in 2021. Can you share some of the key findings of that project? Yeah, this was really one of the instigating events for us. We were launched in April of 2021. Our climate center was in, in just April of 2021. So we're relatively new. And just a few months later, at the end of June and early July, we have this intense, awful heat wave. The 2021 heat dome was, in fact, the most deadly weather event in Washington state history. It killed over 119 people statewide, killed 19 community members in Spokane. And so we realized that maybe what we could do is to help the community understand exactly the full magnitude impact of that event. And so Listeners can learn a little bit about what we've found by going to gonzaga.edu slash beat the heat. And uh, you can interact with these dynamic maps, story map, all sorts of fun research to learn about that heat dump event and also subsequent research in understanding the impacts of extreme heat on our community. One of the things we would hoped to do was to help the community understand it wasn't just the 19 people who died that in a way, those 19 people are like the tip of an iceberg. And so just like an iceberg is sticking out of the water, those 19 people were the, sort of the tip of that iceberg. And then underwater, what we have is this huge number of people that were also impacted, but weren't really, we didn't really see them and understand how big that iceberg was. So we started working with the Washington State Department of Health to learn about who went to emergency rooms in our county during that heat wave in 2021. And what did they, did they report symptoms that were diagnosed as what's called heat-related illness? So the Department of Health collected data about those visits for heat-related illness during the heat dome and compared it to the two years prior to 2019 and 2020. And what we found was that ED visits in the June and July period of 2021 were six to seven times higher than in 2020. Or to put it in, in just numbers of counts, what we found is 293 people visited the emergency department at the hospital in Spokane County in the month of June and July in 2021, where a typical number would be in the 30 to 40 person mm. range. So 300 people went to the hospital. So if you imagine 19 people died, 293 people went to the emergency department with heat-related illness, you start to imagine how big that iceberg is. And that was part of our goal was to help the community understand just how many people are impacted, that it's not merely the unhoused population who, of course, are very impacted by these events. It's actually people who are elderly, people with pre-existing health conditions, people who have to work outdoors for their job, right? We have landscapers and roofers and mm -hmm. people working in agricultural industries, people who are in sports industries have to work outside. And that could be dangerous women who are pregnant. There's all sorts of uh, members in our community. And that's important to know because we can't seek the right kind of solutions if we don't know exactly who's being impacted. And that's been a lot of the goal of our research is to share a little bit more about who all was impacted so that we can then begin to pursue solutions together as a community that would address everybody who's impacted. And did that data include like socioeconomic stuff, the wealth levels of the people who are impacted at all? One of the things that, to your point about, it's not just unhoused people, 
I think Daniel Walters wrote a story last year about the heat dome that was talking about people who died in transitional downtown housing where there's a lack of central air. These are lower income folks who may or may not have a wall unit. And no matter what the situation was, it was just enough that they basically cooked in their own homes. And so did the Department of Health data have socioeconomic stuff attached? That's a great question. So the particular uh, visits data that I was just referring to doesn't involve demographic or socioeconomic data, but we were really curious about that question that you're asking as well, who's impacted and how much. And so what we did was we started working with a group of, of partners in the city, including city council, lands council, 350 Spokane, and Chris Crocker at KXLY, the chief meteorologist there. And we received a small grant from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration to map what's called urban heat islands. Mm, mm-hmm. There's this idea that that heat isn't evenly distributed in a city, that places with, uh, with less tree canopy, l- less green space, and or more roads, more buildings, will retain heat differently. We knew this principle was true, but we didn't know for our community exactly where are these urban heat islands and how big are they? Mm-hmm. both geographically in terms of physical extent and exactly which communities. And so we did this fun partnership in 2022, just uh, last summer, and it allowed us with a community science effort, uh, 40 volunteers drove routes in the early morning, in the afternoon, and in the evening across the city with this special sensor out their window that measured temperature and humidity every second. So they gathered nearly 44,000 data points of temperature and humidity for across the city. And then researchers at NOAA and a consultancy called Kappa Strategies took all these data and created high-resolution urban heat island maps, which you can interact with yourself if you go to gonzaga.edu slash heatmaps. You can look at these interactive maps that'll show you the results of this. And for Spokane, the results were really interesting because in the early morning, what we found was that the period, places along the river in particular shed their heat overnight mm. and places like East Central didn't mm. as nearly as much. In fact, there was as much as a 13.9 degree difference between the river wow. and East Central, wow. which that means like in the morning when it was in the mid to low 70s in by the river, it was actually more like 83, 84 mm. in East Central that morning. And that's pretty remarkable all, all by itself. In the afternoon, that heat shifted a bit to the northern and western parts of the city a little bit more. But if you think about East Central, what do you know about it is that it's got the freeway running through it, it's got the railroad running through it, and it's got large industrial buildings. And so those were all retaining a lot of heat. It was also historically redlined as well. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So that gets us to the main part of your question about demographics. We gathered this urban heat island information. So now we know where they are, how big they are. And then we worked with the Department of Health to bring in that demographic information. We're interested, are there correlations between concentrations of urban heat and age, race, income, English proficiency? And so they helped us create additional map layers. Mm -hmm. And so when you go onto the website at gonzaga.edu slash heatmaps, you can toggle on and off those different map layers. You can toggle on a map layer that gives you communities that are living under the the poverty line or that identify as black or indigenous or something other than white. 
Uh, you can do it by age and so on. So what we found in this correlation analysis that we published there on the website, our findings with the Department of Health, is that there were no strong correlations between urban heat islands and age and English proficiency. There was no statistical correlation for those two factors. But there were very strong statistical correlations between the those urban heat islands and income and whether or not you identified as Black or Indigenous. So that statistically, it's more likely that you're going to live in this place that has less tree cover and higher concentrations of heat if you are living below the poverty line or you're not white. And that's significant information, right? It tells us who's most impacted and therefore what we should be doing to help the people who are most impacted. Yeah, the other piece of what you just said there a second ago that's so fascinating to me, and it intersects with the sort of political and just societal conversation we're having around homelessness right now is one of the big narratives about the Trent Shelter track is that like it's going to stop people from camping. We're sort of in this liminal space with the Boise and the the other decisions that are like, you can't criminalize homelessness if you don't have shelter space. But one of the big dynamics there is passing anti-camping ordinances. And it strikes me that, um, and you're a, you're a philosophy guy, and I at least have a bachelor's in philosophy. One of the things you think about a lot when you're thinking about philosophy and ethics is rational responses to solutions. So not whether this is the correct policy thing or what we want to be advocating for. There was people camping along the river in summer is a rational response to being unhoused and looking to get out of the heat, right? This is what it sounds like based on this data that says those areas cool down a lot better than these urban heat islands do. So people are naturally going to where the weather is more bearable, which is close to water, close to tree cover. And that's so that's a rational response to being unhoused. Yeah, I see your point. I hadn't thought of it that way, that if you were unhoused and you were trying to escape the heat, yeah, I suppose you're right. Then there's a sense in which you would naturally go and would find those places that were cooler. That And those are places, parks that have more tree canopy and more grass. There are places like the river. I suppose that is a rational decision. There are, of course, probably other reasons as, as well. Right. But really, I'd like to emphasize that part of our goal with this was to help the community understand that this is not just a summer version of our winter problem. Our winter problem is how to provide spaces, shelter to get out of the cold for unhoused populations. And there was a lot of, of initial response to this, that the heat wave was the same thing, where we need to provide a summer cooling mm -hmm. center mm -hmm. for those communities. And that's intuitive, and there's some significant truth to that. But it turns out that it's not just those people, it's especially those people that are unhoused, but it's not just those people that right. in Spokane, most people who have a home do have heating. What we found though, is that when we surveyed the community, we received almost 1800 responses from the, the community to our, our survey, that 25% of respondents said they don't have any air conditioning. Right. And of those 75% who do have air conditioning, 20% of that group, one in five, said that they have significant impediments to using the air conditioner, either the financial cost of running it right. or needing repairs. So if you think about how many people that is that are in our community, that it's the unhealthy population plus 25% or more of the community who are at risk during an extreme heat event, then we start to realize that it's 
both the unhoused population, but also a large number of people who are just simply low-income residents or people who are in lower in housing stock who just don't have air conditioners mm-hmm. or their landlord doesn't let them have one that are actually at risk. And another interesting figure from that survey was that 88% of respondents said that they don't intend to leave their home during a heat wave. And this tracks what the city's finding. They're creating useful places to escape the heat, but the city keeps pointing out that nobody's using them. Right. And I think our evidence, our survey tracks that people don't intend to use them. And I think that's not surprising because people historically haven't needed to. They've been able to survive just fine in their house. And what we're probably going to find in one of the educational pieces that we think as a university we can help the community to understand is in a typical warm day, you'll be fine. But you need to realize that if you don't have a way of cooling off any space in your home and we have an extreme heat event, you probably need to have plans to be able to go somewhere to be able to escape because it could be deadly if you stay in your home without any way of cooling cooling it off. And that's, I think, a really important shift in understanding and habit for community members to understand. You talked about this rational response of go to the river. That's an individual response and a short-term response. Can you talk about the long-term responses for communities that have disparate heat exposure? What are we doing to cool it down and adapt? Yeah, that's exactly the right term of adaptation and resilience. We need to figure out how to become resilient to the changes that we're causing. And so there are a lot of things we can do and, and the city is doing that makes a lot of sense. We're creating and staffing good places that people can escape the heat. So we have these beautiful libraries that the community has decided to fund. And so people can go to the library, read a book and to ride out the heat. We have community centers. There's these great places that they can that people can go. STA, our public transit, has been a great partner starting last year. They started providing free rides to low-income residents to cooling centers so that they could, if they needed a way to get there, they would provide the means. And so that's a good step as well. Long-term, we need to make sure that we're prioritizing those communities who need more green space. And so what's neat is that the urban heat island mapping project that we helped to lead is providing the, exactly the data that the Parks Department needs and the Urban Forestry Department needs, in, especially in collaboration with the Lands Council's Spokanopy project, where they're going out into the community and planting trees, and now we know exactly which communities need it most and first. Mm. And that's really exciting. There's a lot of new federal funding, in part through the Inflation Reduction Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill that actually provide money for new urban tree planting. And I hear that the city is probably going to be pursuing some of that funding. And that'd be really exciting to increase tree canopy in those neighborhoods that need it the most, that would benefit the most. That's a long-term project. And then finally, two other things that we're pursuing. One is a heat health awareness campaign with the Spokane Regional Health District. So once we learned all this information, we realized that there's a lot of an educational component to this, that the city is standing up important resources. But if the community doesn't understand the risks, then you know, there's a missing piece. And so we've partnered with the health district to develop some short video PSAs and fact sheets. Those are just being finished up right now and in the next month or so, we hope to begin releasing those and circulating them in the community. And then finally, we need to have a way of getting air conditioners to people who need them the most. I didn't used to think this, 
because I thought, well, we just air conditioners use a lot of electricity and we need to use less electricity. But honestly, that's just telling some people that they need to suffer yeah. and potentially die. And I'm now of the view that every home needs to have at least one room that they can air conditioner as a safety measure. Mm -hmm. And if they can't afford it, we need to help them get one. And so we started just recently a partnership with SNAP, the Spokane Neighborhood Action Partners, and they have the ability to re receive donations from community members, cash donations, and they're putting it into a cooling fund and they're going to buy air conditioners and then they're going to get those air conditioners to community members who are living below the poverty line. I think it's either 150% or 200% of the federal poverty line. So if you are out there listening and you have resources to donate, you can go to snapwa.org and donate to the cooling fund and help them buy air conditioners. Or if you're a resident who needs an air conditioner and would qualify, you can also go there and they can help you to find out whether or not you'd be eligible to get a free air conditioner in your home so that you could be safe next time we have a heat wave. Is there any sense that, and I don't know if you're necessarily advocating for policy changes at the municipal level or anything, if the cooling centers are only a piece of the solution, is there a potential policy remedy where you just, we push at least a, a portion of that funding toward helping people get a window unit for one room of their house to ensure that there's at least, if you need respite, you can get it. And then if there's, maybe this is outside the scope of what you researched so far, but it also the thing you said about landlords won't let people have air conditioners because a lot of these, a lot of these lower income buildings are not individually metered. And sometimes it's so the all in rent cost is the fluctuations in heating and air and stuff is handled by the landlord, which is why landlords often put in rules like you can't have a, an air conditioner. Is there a potential need for a policy fix there too, to say like, you're not allowed to tell people they can't have air conditioners or something like that? Yeah. But I must say that I've, that's mostly anecdotal impression from what I've heard people say sure. that they have been told by some landlords. And I don't know how common that is or how that would necessarily be solved. That's an interesting, that, that's of course a very thorny and tricky issue in our community about how to regulate that. Um, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves because I'm not sure how exactly that would be pulled off, but I would stand by the view that every household needs to have the ability to cool off at least one room. Not sure of exactly the policy procedures that would need to be pursued in order to make sure that, that can be true for every family. Right. Some communities in the country are doing some innovative things that we could consider pursuing. Some have created a surcharge, something they pay to the city, whether it be part of the utility bill or something else. And that surcharge goes into a fund that then does purchase air conditioners for low-income residents. So that is something we could consider doing if the, we weren't able to do it privately through community-based organizations like SNAP. And it'll be interesting to see how many people rise to this occasion. I am interested on the general idea of policy. We are excited to be able to present to the mayor and her administration a few weeks ago. There were a group of Gonzaga Environmental Studies students that as part of their senior capstone, they helped to create a story map that's on our website at gonzaga.edu slash beat the heat. And this really neat story map and presentation that they helped develop, they were able to deliver it to the mayor and her administration and received a very positive, warm welcome. And one of the things that came out of that was a tentative partnership to begin collaborating between the Gonzaga Climate Center and the mayor's emergency manager to begin trying to develop an expanded heat response plan for the city. So we're excited to explore 
what that might look like. One example that I'd throw out that I think would be really interesting is to have a, some sort of an early warning system and protocol in place where we work with local news and we work with the health district and the city to say when certain conditions are met, we engage a plan where we tell people how large the danger is and what they might need to do. And it would activate a set of processes that would go into effect. And so I'm excited to explore that with the city and also community partners. I really feel like we all have a role to play. There are things that can be done through policy, but there are also things that educational institutions can do, community-based organizations, and then households. And so I feel like if we all, sounds cheesy, but if we all just did our part, we need to do things like check on our neighbors. A buddy system would be really good if you have an elderly neighbor mm. who, and you have a heat wave coming and just say, hey, would it be okay if we checked on each other during this heat dome? Because I just wanted to make sure you're okay so that if they're suffering, you can help them out. And I think we have a very community-minded city. That would be a, some cities have tried to support that and formalize the wrong word. Just try and get a buddy system where you'd mm. be encouraged to be a good neighbor and check in on folks. And so that would be a fun thing to explore as well. And so as an organization for education, those are some things that we can help support, but it'll require a whole community effort. As you said earlier, to adapt as a community, we really need to do this community-wide and we all need to be involved in it. You're really, you're talking about mutual aid basically. And I think it's, right. it's, such a, it's a really good point because poverty is obviously concentrated in places and you can often see it on a map in the ways we've talked about, but it also lives in sneaky places all throughout our communities. And especially with seniors on fixed incomes and other folks, you don't always know where that stuff lives. So it makes a lot of sense that outside of whatever policy prescriptions there is, there should just be this awareness raising to to check in on each other and just generally do the things that communities do well, which is, you know, take care of each other. That's right. When we were doing the survey, we partnered with Meals on Wheels to have 300 surveys be distributed to homebound seniors to make sure that in our sample, they were well represented because they're very much at risk. And so when we're trying to understand what their perceptions and experiences are of heat, we want to make sure we're asking everybody in, in the community. And there is, our community has a lot of poverty. And that means that there are a lot of people that we need to be thinking about when we're making plans. And so you're right, that sort of the sneaky sort of ways in which we don't have direct associations. I think of the rental stock and the older houses we have in our community are really big challenge. Mm. The Logan neighborhood just north of Gonzaga, it's mostly now rental units, not owner-occupied. And because frequently the landlord doesn't pay the utilities, those have poor insulation, single pane windows, right. old infrastructure. And the people who live in those places are uncomfortable and they have really expensive utility bills and they can't fix the problem. And those, that's a really hard problem to solve, right? Because the landlord owns the property, the landlord owns the infrastructure, but they're not paying the cost in mm. health and they're not paying the cost in terms of the literal expense of the utility. Right. So part of the solution to this in the longer term, as Carl was asking, is also not only getting energy assistance to low-income residents, and SNAP does a nice job of having a model for distributing assistance money to low-income residents who have trouble paying their utility bills, but really we also need to figure out a way to get them so they can insulate those buildings better, replace the windows. How do we create a virtuous cycle where landlords would have an incentive to want to do that? Insulation is such a great, it's not sexy, 
But it's such a fantastic solution mm -hmm. because it works well for everybody. It, it makes the space more comfortable to live in, which is great. It reduces the energy use, which decreases your bills, which saves you money, right? And then it reduces the amount of pollution caused by having to create more electricity. And so it's sort of a win-win-win. But we don't have a model right now in the city to do that. We do, there used to be a model in, in the, during the Great Recession where there was a federal program that a company could go and do an energy audit of a home. And if they found that they could make it, it recommend improvements to the home that had a five-year return on investment or less, let's say you replace the windows or do insulation or replace your furnace, if the savings from the change would pay for the cost, Within five years, they would loan you money to do the improvement at basically 0% interest. So they'd say, mm -hmm. here's money to fix your windows or to do insulation. And then you would pay it back with the savings you would get from lower utility bills and things like that. Mm -hmm. And it would just have be a green revolving fund. But that fell apart when that program sunsetted after the Great Recession. And so it'd be really neat if local banks and community-based organizations tried to create a, something similar in our community of energy audits. So the community members would know what their home needed and then some sort of a funding mechanism where they could be getting low cost capital to be able to mm -hmm. do those improvements. That would be a really cool, innovative program that would require some significant partnership. But I think it's the model's there and it's doable. And that would really help all those folks who are in our very older housing stock. The state of Washington just did a bunch to improve commercial and residential building codes for new construction, which is super important, but it does nothing for all of the existing housing stock, which if we don't also address that, then we're not really going to solve the problem and we're not really going to be providing for the people who are suffering in these extreme heat events. Yeah, we aren't exactly creating a lot of new housing stock up breakneck pace either so those codes are will help but it's not that's not where the majority of people are living is in new houses that's for sure the rule of holes is when you find yourself in a hole you the first rule is to stop digging so <laughs> i see the changes in the building code as a, an important way of stopping the digging right, right? <laughs> so now how do we start getting out of the hole is the addressing the existing stock of commercial and residential buildings and there's a lot of interest among some people in the hvac business and even the home builders to, to push insulation. I hear a lot of the community talking about the importance of focusing on not only solar panels, but maybe first we should focus on insulation. And they're mm -hmm. not wrong. Mm -hmm. It really is a relatively low cost, but high impact thing that we could be doing. We just don't have a business model right now that would make that work. And so we we'll right. probably need a combination of government, business, collaboration, and nonprofit probably to pull that off. Yeah, I know I got an insulation rebate a couple of years ago from Inland Power that cut the bill almost in half. So I do think that some of those programs exist on an individual basis, but it seems like there's not a lot of awareness about them. And then, like you said, there isn't the same incentive for, say, a landlord to be pr providing that insulation. That's right. That's right. It's a really tough problem to, to fix. So if we can tell a landlord that will help you improve the value of your property at low or no cost to yourself is probably what we're going to have to do. And I think that is worth pursuing. That would probably be a sufficient incentive, mm -hmm. I would suspect. How do we do that in a way that doesn't move low-income residents out of those 
homes would be the second concern, right? How do we make sure we don't end up gentrifying those areas unintentionally? So we need to make sure we also protect those spaces to be homes that people can afford, that rental spaces and homes that they can afford, but are also not risky and deadly in extreme heat events. We haven't really much talked about smoke, but that's our other new climate summertime hazard. And smoke is also a really difficult issue, especially for renters, that we're hoping to begin studying at the Climate Center as well. Because right now, if you don't have any air conditioning, and so we know now that at least out of our respondents of the 1,800 people who said that they didn't have, 25% said they didn't have air conditioners. We also asked a little bit more about who had a central versus window. But if you have either no air conditioning or a, or a window air conditioning unit and it's bad smoke outside, closing your windows doesn't do a whole lot of good if you have no way of cleaning the air inside. And so we're hoping to study this a little bit more closely with more indoor and outdoor sensors around the city so that we can get data from the same location for indoor and outdoor and say, in fact, in this location with no air filtration, no central air, how bad is the air? It's, I suspect, I'm worried that, in fact, there could be homes where closing your windows with no central air, it could be even worse than outside. There, there was, there's no reason to think it's better. I worry that it could be worse, but it's just trapping it. And if there's no way of cleaning it, so if you're out there and you're worried about this, one of the things you can do, there's a great DIY air filter system that's really affordable for a lot of people. You just buy a box fan mm. and then you buy a three-inch MERV 13, M-E-R-V 13. It's a rating system for how good the filter is. So you buy a MERV 13 air filter that's the same dimensions as the box fan. And then you buy a bungee gourd and you bungee that sucker to the back of the fan and it works quite well. You want to buy a few more filters and replace them over the course of the summer. But that actually can clean your air pretty well. And I recommend if you don't have a way of doing that, that you go. If you don't have central air conditioning with a good filter on it, I would definitely consider if you can't afford a commercial grade air cleaner, then this DIY one. And you can find videos online to help explain it, but it's pretty, pretty simple. And that's a good way of cleaning your air inside. So that's another hazard that we as a community probably need to begin tackling a little bit more because this guidance is a little confusing. It's a little tricky, right, about what to do when. It's one thing to know what the air quality is like outside, but that doesn't necessarily tell you what to do. Mm. If you don't know what your air quality is like inside, then it's hard to know exactly what to do. So we're hoping to partner with the Spokane Regional Clean Air Agency. And we applied for an EPA grant recently that would... Uh, pursue the improvement of some of the city's community centers. And so we're hoping to be able to find resources from the EPA, bring them to Spokane to improve some of the city-owned community centers so that they could be ready to be refuges for cleaner air centers as well mm. as serving as cooling centers during these periods. Yeah, I mean, it, I grew up in Chatteroy and Firestorm came right through our property and we lost, we almost lost our home, lost some outbuildings and... Despite that, and fi wildfires were a, they're a factor of life. They're actually an ecologically important part of this whole region. Like the sort of prairie with twenty pine trees per acre in a state of nature is those are that's a, that's an ecology that is built by wildfires. So they're natural. At the same time, the refrain was like, "Wow, that was really hard." But at least we aren't in California, and that's close to thirty years ago at this point. And now it feels like what felt like the raging wildfires in California 
like how bad those fire seasons were have migrated far enough north. It feels like it's as bad now as it was in California 30 years ago. California's in a place where sections of that state might just be uninhabitable or so dangerous that you don't even want to try to insure a house in, in certain places. That's part of what we're seeing, the effects of climate change shifting these really extreme weather patterns further north, right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. And so as we change those patterns and those trends that we were talking about earlier, we see that fires are larger, longer, hotter. And of course, that burns a lot of forest, but releases a lot of carbon dioxide and it traps more heat. So it's also creating an unfortunate cycle that's making the problem worse. Something to think about when we're going back to the idea of urban tree plantings too is we probably as a community need to figure out a way to make sure that we're not just planting them, we're planting species that are going to be able to survive and that we mm -hmm. also provide for ways to, to care for those trees, especially in the first years of its life. It's, it's important that we not we don't just go into a community and say, here's a bunch of trees and that we want to assure that they want them, that they have some input on what the species are. Mm -hmm. And that we're also giving them ways of making sure they can get them watered. It's an interesting sort of urban versus the forest, but the wildfire changes are significant. I'm glad you brought up the fact that, of course, they're a natural part of our landscape and they have been. And there are lots of complicated reasons why they're maybe larger than they used to be. Some of the ways that we've managed forests, of course, are contributing. Mm -hmm. But that isn't the entire explanation about why they're so large and yeah. why they're so hot. I would also think that we'd we'd be wrong to say that they're purely an ecological that the what we see as 150 years ago a natural region was also of a fire regime and a landscape shaped by indigenous stewards since time immemorial. Yeah, that's a good point. That's right. Um, and and then the yeah like after the big burn the decision to basically try to stop all forest fires to your point was part of what led to these dog hair thickets of pine that basically become kindling in forests where that aren't managed either by indigenous stewards or just natural fire processes so those on the one hand that's what one of the reasons fires got worse when they were allowed to, or when they were able to break through but then also yeah climate change that's right and one of the things that we as a academic project you're trying to do is really just help provide what sometimes is referred to as decision support. So we can provide information, research that helps to inform better decision making so that it's not up to us to what the policies are, but we can at least provide as much information as possible about who's impacted, why it's happening, what are the sorts of things, right? So that we at least have it as much as possible to be well informed. And the community partners across the city have been really interested and really excited. In fact, at the mayor's cabinet, when we presented Garrett Jones from the city's parks department was really excited about the maps and, and the data that would provide him more information about where to locate parks, mm. which communities needed it the most. And he was, was he followed us out into the hall and gave us his card and was really excited about partnering on this because he has more granular information that he can use to make better decisions for the community. And that's really cool to be able to feel like the research that we're doing can help the city to achieve its mission to serve the people better. And that's been a really fun partnership to see growing in the last year that we've been working since the, the heat dome. Spokane's behind, all communities in the West are behind, but there's a lot we can do mm. to help so that as we see with these heat domes already, they're not deadly yet because it's cooling off at night, but who knows what this summer, it, it feels like we're just biding our time 
And as we've changed the climate dice, the probability of these events has been changed. And so we know they're more probable now, and we know they're going to become more frequent. And so the clock is ticking. We need to act with urgency. Yeah, I'm glad you brought the urban canopy stuff back up because it strikes me that that's a 20-year remediation that becomes like relatively cheap over time, but it also gets, it take, it's going to take a while for those trees to get mature enough to the point that they're providing enough shade to actually meaningfully cool stuff off. So that's probably like lowest cost, best for the environment, but also longest term. I mean, so that's all good. That's like a pretty awesome long-term strategy. It strikes me the window units in a house is it's not even really a fix. What of that is is more of a short-term adaptation to just keep people alive. Is there anything in the middle like where is there a two or three or four year? What exists in the middle ground of those two poles to like make things considerably better in maybe a medium term space? Or is there anything? So some communities have tried to change the reflectivity of certain surfaces. So mm-hmm. making sure that large structures have white roofs can do a lot. A lot of businesses have done that because it makes good business sense, but a lot of older buildings maybe haven't yet. Some communities have also, there's an application apparently that you can apply to road surfaces as well that would change the, from a very dark black surface, which really retains the heat. So you can also apparently apply something to the surface to, to make it so that it's not as dark to also decrease. And that actually apparently has a way of immediately affecting the urban heat island effect Hmm. as well. So I don't know if that's exactly in that middle of ground, but it's, it feels like it's something like that, where it's not just an emergency sort of tourniquet that's stemming the bleeding Mm -hmm. (laughs) or the long permanent sort of fix, but that does sit in there. It's about the built environment of things because the urban heat island effect is about the built environment. We need to do things to change what it is about the built environment, roadways, buildings, we're not gonna tear them down. So how can we modify them to reduce their impact? Mm. That's part of what this seems to be doing so that we can, over time, make it so that those neighborhoods aren't unnecessarily overly impacted while we wait for those young trees to grow up and provide a bunch of, of great shade. Yeah. Speaking of time, I wanted to make sure we're not taking too much of yours, Brian. I, I know we asked, <laughs> we're already about oh, 20 God, minutes Oh God, we're at over. an hour, damn. <laughs> It's been a fun conversation, hasn't it? Let me see. I think we're I think we're good. Yeah, I'm fine. Cool. So you have some brand new research in conjunction with the University of Washington and Department of Health on the impacts of the heat dome. Some of that research really looks at Spokane as a case lesson. Can you talk a little bit about that upcoming research and what you learned from the case lesson of Spokane? Yeah, we're really honored to be able to partner with this really great collaboration. So it's led by what's called the Climate Impacts Group at the University of Washington, which is really one of the premier climate science organizations in the world. They help write the national climate assessment that's mandated by Congress for the Northwest region. They're partnering with the Washington State Department of Health, and they invited the Gonzaga Center for Climate Society and the Environment to also be a co-author on this report, which will be released on June 22nd this summer that, as you said, goes back and reflects on what we learned about the heat dome. And then it's really not just some sterile peer-reviewed article. It's really intended to be a very practical document about exactly what communities across the state of Washington can be doing today to begin making their communities more resilient to extreme heat events. And so 
it's exciting to see that. You should be able to see some news coming out in late June about this. So keep an eye out and look at the website at gonzaga.edu slash climate center. If you go to our website, you can subscribe to our email list, and that'll help you to be notified of future research that we're doing, future events that we host, since we host climate lecture series every semester that are free of charge to the community and available online and in person. And so you can learn about those. It also help you to be notified of this report that'll come out this June. Awesome. Thanks, Brian. Parting question. What is your favorite street tree? <laughs> when we moved here, we went to the Audubon website and said, what is good for our region and what's a good street tree? And so I picked a, a red, a northern red oak. I like the idea of something being really slow growing and really big and beautiful. And they're just, you know, we have a ton of maples, but not as many oak trees. So I'm rather fond of my little oaks. Having gotten to know the community better, in hindsight, I probably would have picked like a ponderosa now, but I am fond of our little oak trees, which are now 14 years later, are looking pretty impressive. Mm. They're like probably 30 feet tall now. They're slow growing, but they're, they started off as little shoots and now they're 30 feet tall and they're putting out some good shade. And we planted maybe five or six of them around the planting strips around our house. We live in the Emerson Garfield neighborhood, which is actually has some significant urban heat islands. And so mm -hmm. I'm hoping we're doing our little part in, at our home to, to reduce the concentrations of urban heat in our little neighborhood. I'd like to put a plug in for a mountain ash. That's the street tree we picked when we bought our house. It's nice, especially because we've been having these like quick cold snaps where leaves didn't even fall off the trees last year because it got so cold so fast. What I've noticed, and at first it was like, oh, it's a bummer that these didn't turn a beautiful color in the winter. They just kind of, well, they do turn a vibrant color, but it lasts a week and then they just drop. And I think that's probably... The adaptation of the mountain part of the mountain ash is just like, all right, the snow's going to hit. This is all going to get really heavy. So we the provide some really great shade during the summer, and then they, they we don't have a lot of broken branches when we get these wild, quick turn winter storms. So mountain ash, big fan. I'm going to plug the honey locust, bulletproof and leguminous, so that it provides for the plants around it. You're making me both feel like I made a wrong choice. I, don't tell the city. that I don't think ours was on the list. I didn't realize I was supposed to get permission for certain species. I just chose the Arbor Day's recommendation. So <laughs> don't talk, don't tell about our oak trees. So <laughs> Thanks so much for your time, Brian. It's been really awesome. I guess one last question that we like to ask, especially when we have heavy topics like this, because like this is about the heaviest topic you can get, and it's going to take a whole society and even global fix that it's not always clear is coming. So what gives you hope when you're doing this work? We're strongly of the view here at the Climate Center that we need to make it local and keep it hopeful is one of our mottos. We have a whole project called the Climate Literacy Project where we do lessons in K-12 classrooms and workshops for K-12 teachers across the city. And that make it local and keep it hopeful mantra one of the ways that we, we you keep it hopeful is I'm strongly of the view that the antidote to despair is agency, that finding ways of doing meaningful things in response to a difficult, complicated, large problem. So what are those forms of agency that we've talked about today? Supporting SNAP to buy air conditioners, mm. supporting Spokanopy to plant trees, right? Checking on your neighbor making sure you've got a good insulation. There are all sorts of things, forms of agency that we have in our lives that, that are meaningful and that make a difference and that 
when you're reading the bad news and you're seeing the bad things, you're like, you know that you're doing the things you can. You're doing as much as you can with what you have. And for me, at least, action is cheaper than a therapist in terms of keeping despair at bay. So agency, that would be my plug. I like that. Brian Henning, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you so much. That was great. Thanks again to Brian Henning for coming on the pod and for his work and the work of everybody at the Gonzaga Center for Climate, Society, and the Environment. This stuff's vital, you know, everywhere, but it's really great to have that work contextualized for us locally in Spokane. And I really like the idea that agency is cheaper than a therapist, um, although I hope my therapist doesn't hear that. I also want to thank my co-host for today, Carl Segerstrom, for doing the actual research and coming up with the questions that moved the conversation forward, uh, allowing me to just do my usual jazz odyssey. Thanks to Stephen Smith for editing the interview. And thanks to all of you, whether you're a member of Range. Quick reminder, the membership, extremely affordable, starting at $10 a month or $100 a year. The details of which are conveniently located at rangemedia.co rangemedia.co or you're just an evangelist spreading the gospel of range near and far we appreciate your support in all of its forms one last thing before we go for the love of god professor henning told us something about his street trees the oak he clearly was a little bashful about don't be a street tree narc oaks are beautiful trees may may or may not have been on the city's list but come on any tree is better than no tree Let the man and his beautiful oaks live in peace. All right, that's it for us. Until next time, bye.